It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be home. I got back from two weeks abroad on a trip that I've kind of alluded to and referenced on the internet. Um, But yeah, I was in Palestine, you know, doing various things, climbing, (laughs) seeing my, uh, my grandfather's home in Jerusalem. Yeah, it was an amazing trip. So happy to be home. Tell me just about visiting your grandfather's house. So, yeah, this uh, this house is this amazing, like, mansion that um, my great-grandfather built in 1926 and is still around. It was taken in 1948, and it's, you know, a house that I've heard about my whole life and, you know, it was always kind of this... What do you mean it was taken? It was stolen when Israel was created. The, oh. the house was taken from my family, and and so, yeah, it was this, like, prominent house in, in western Jerusalem. Uh, where a lot of Palestinian families lived, like aristocratic Palestinians, like it was kind of a wealthy neighborhood. And uh, yeah, so that was, you know, part of my upbringing was hearing stories about this house. And I was never quite sure how I would feel about my Palestinian background or my identity. And so this trip in part was just kind of to clarify some of those questions for me about what my relationship is to this part of the world and these people and how I should feel about an issue that, you know, is really difficult to get a straight answer on, you know, depending on what you read and hear about in the media and stuff like that, because it's so politicized. So it was kind of like this heritage trip of, you know, that was kind of really personally meaningful. And also we tagged on some, some climbing as well. And uh, what did you get to go in? I mean, what did you did you just have now, to look at it from outside? What yeah. was the story of going to the house? Well, so yeah, it was. Um, I'm just. Gated. Th- I mean, the climbing, sure, whatever. We are, <laughs> we've talked about that on here before. So yeah, um, I my you know I have cousins who've done the same trip that I just did, and one of them got to go in because he found a Palestinian gardener who kind of led him into the house, probably illegally. Probably got fired for that. I met a Israeli gardener who had a gun on his hip and uh, told us to leave, basically. Uh, He was very polite and nice, but um, yeah, there was, you know, no one was home and he he wasn't going to let us into the house. And so we asked him to call the the owners of the house and see if they would let us in, but I never heard back from him, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. He's not going to bother them. And honestly, that wasn't important. I can't. I can imagine what the inside is like and stuff. Would it have been really cool? Of course, but it was more about, you know, just this journey to have a meaningful experience. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of cool. I mean, like Jerusalem is like just this amazing city of where that's exactly what people do from around the world is they travel here to find meaning. And it's, you know, tied to like religious significance. And, you know, there's uh, sites for Muslims, Jews, and Christians in in the city that are really important. So, yeah, it was I don't know. It's like a very special place. I'm really hoping to go back. Right, and you don't have any particular religious affiliation in any of that. My family is Christian Palestinian. Okay, um, but uh, like my grandfather became pretty. He was an atheist, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So, 
No, my family wasn't very right. religious, but right. I had kind of always associated this trip with it just being about, you know, I don't know, trying to connect with my family story. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't really right. prepared for the amount of religious tourism I was about to experience and see. But like me, I mean, we met this, there's this whole random contingent of Texan evangelical Christians who travel to Palestine to go on like archaeology digs to find significant religious things that can prove that creationism is real or something like right, that. Right. Um, well, the Bible stories too. Yeah. The Bible, know. whatever right, it is, right. it's just like all like, this has to be true. And if we just dig in the ground, we'll find the truth, you know, and that in and of itself is a way to, to give meaning to people. But yeah, it was just really weird. It was, it was, um, I was just really outside of my, you know, my normal world of, of who I hang out with and right. speak to and, and, but yeah, you know, the Palestinian climbers that we hung out with were the most welcoming, amazing, hospitable, generous people. They made me feel really at home. You know, everyone was like, oh, you look Palestinian, you know, and uh, it just felt good to be seen in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, 10 out of 10, I'd recommend well, a trip to a, Palestine. It's, there's, you know, it just happened to be a coincidence that the current enormous is with Miranda Oakley, who's yeah, I know is a, a climbing celebrity over there. Like, yes, she's sort of the wonderful example of how badass a you know someone with Palestinian roots can become. Yeah, I w- it was a significant step down for them to see <laughs> see me, um, given that Miranda's such a badass climber. Um, yes, I mean you know she brings some charms. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I, hopefully I haven't uh, ruined. <laughs> ruined it for american palestinians but um no I don't yeah think no so, bro. yeah no everyone spoke of miranda as just like this amazing person who they just absolutely adored and she did the she, i mean she basically did the same trip i just did where mm-hmm. you know she wanted to connect with the side of her family and and go climbing and you know experience the palestinian climbing community um but yeah there was some of the people i met were just like you know have it in there as a life goal to to one day find a way to travel to the United States and climb El Cap with Miranda Oakley. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's um, not on, out of the question. Yeah. But uh, she also went as far as to, you know, run some clinics over there and yeah. do this um, kind of Wadi Rum climbing meetup for Palestinian climbers. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's gone pretty deep. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's going to go into, I think, retirement from traveling over there because she just had a baby, um, yeah. at least for a bit. Um, but I'm sure they're awaiting the arrival of... of uh, of her child of course. <laughs> is, is, yeah, is yet another like, you know, yeah. important milestone in Palestinian climbing. So. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> if she keeps her child from them, there'll be problems, I think. So I'm psyched to uh, listen to that episode of the Enorma cast and hear what she has to say about it. Yeah. Um, I think her, um, you know, you guys probably aligned on your views. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> you've got some other projects going on creatively with, what you did over there. So mm-hmm. we'll kind of be revealing more as we go along. Yeah, there. for sure. Yeah. They're exciting. I'm a little nervous about them all, but I think that hopefully they work out. Right. Um, but yeah, we'll, I mean, it's funny we'll cause you got that. sort of caught, it started out as this personal trip that, that got caught up in, well, I mean, that's your job. Right. That's Everything do. I do ends up, yeah, there is no like personal <laughs> or separation between personal and work. Um, like even our friendship. Yeah, for example. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are we business partners or friends well, hard to say i don't know if we're business partners we better start making more money um <laughs> yeah so. so yeah 
thanks. I'm psyched to be home. Um, and we're sitting outside at your house right now on, on uh, a project that you were working on while I was gone. Well, I've been working on it for a long time, but I, I officially called it done. Yeah. Um, it's, we're, it's this uh, deck yeah. um, with this little, is this a gazebo or a pergola? Uh, I don't know. It's yeah. a, per, a pergola zebo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was my own design. But yeah, but yeah. So um, I declared it done, but I had to do some, I had to do some language manipulation to mm-hmm. get it to be called done, right? Because it has some. I need to do some staining on it still, but that's gonna. I put that into the maintenance category, right? <laughs> um, so as to, and then I'm gonna build a bench, but I've just made that a whole separate project. Yeah. Um. Even though it'll be somewhat incorporated in it, so right. I had to do. I had to do something psychologically so I could call it done. So you should start another podcast about semantic trip tricks that <laughs> DIY homeowners can use to get so their projects to done try faster. to move on yeah. because otherwise it just like weighs on you forever. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about some things that have been happening in the climbing world. Actually, what we're going to talk about is our pending climb that's coming up that I, you didn't know that I booked, oh, shit. Um, but we leave in two days for Alaska to attempt the Slovak direct. Oh, yes. <laughs> I did get a text from you one night, <laughs> late at night. Yeah, it's all arranged. It's yeah. all arranged. We're we're leaving tomorrow. It's a, what they call a smash and grab trip <laughs> to Alaska, um, which I've learned all about in the last couple months. Fly in straight to Talkeetna. We get on an airplane. They put us at the base of the wall. We start climbing. So um, what do I need to be, succeed on this? You, I mean- Elitist attitude? Elitist attitude would be okay. really good. Okay, um, I've got that. Sort of like crampons, yes, optional. Uh, yeah, crampons. I, I think probably rock shoes and you know, just like a tank and maybe a pullover. I heard the roots really boot pack now. Yeah, it's all boot, it's all chipped out. Yeah. So we're just gonna use our <laughs> fingers in the little holes where they put their ice axes. Um, no, but I, I bring that up. It's it's actually in the same category as our upcoming Everest trip. Um, we got a lot of alpine climbing coming up. <laughs> We're going to auction. Actually, these guys that have been, been running up the Slovak have been doing it with three people. So we're going to auction off the third spot. Oh, yeah. Um, the run out third spot. If you want to be on our rope with us on the Slovak, yeah. um, you know, just start bidding on Venmo. We'll just uh, <laughs> we'll go from there. So, yeah. And to really clarify what we're talking about is that on May 15th of this year, uh, Matt Cornell, Jackson Marvel, and Alan Rousseau climbed the Slovak in 21 hours and 35 minutes which like blew everyone's mind but then two weeks later on june 3rd michael gardner sam hennessy and rob smith also climbed the slovak trap this time in 17 hours and 10 minutes yeah so there's like an arms race on the slovak direct this just year. amazing like yeah the record being broken twice in like two weeks right by guys who all know and climb together um yeah. and what was the line that you had in Oh yeah, and in that the Alpinist article, article that yeah. thought was funny. It's like the first paragraph they like explain that this this record got broken twice, and then they have to say all six climbers are friends and expressed happiness for everyone's success. <laughs> That's when I shut the article off because it would have been more interesting if they were like they fucking hate each other and uh, got into a fist fight afterwards. Yeah, on the tarmac in Talkeetna, it was like this little like sharks and jets like they had a dance fight to like <laughs> try to see who rules <laughs> just <laughs> but yeah
but yeah, this 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 news has been interesting because I've been sort of privy to it because I ended up talking to Jackson Marvel a little bit ago. That's not been, I've not put that out yet, but um, not long. I mean, literally about six or seven days after he returned um, from the trip, where him and Matt Cornell and Alan Rousseau like blasted up it in twenty one hours and thirty five minutes, which like almost cuts two thirds off of the previous record um, by one Mark Twite, who I've yeah. also talked to um, on the Enormacast um, extensively. Yeah, that was big news like 20 years ago yeah. when that happened. It was like- Literally like in 2000, right? Yeah. In 2002. Something like that, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was Mark Twite's, um, Steve House and Scott Backey's, and, and they did that 60-hour push of the Slovak Direct. And it was kind of this- kind of touted or positioned by those guys as this culmination of um, their approach to uh, light and fast alpinism. And that kind of became a buzzword that, you know, changed everything from it. it, Well, one, it inspired a lot of people to, you know, abandoned expedition style tactics and do light, only light and fast pushes where you're like not sleeping, you carry a minimum of food and you're just moving on a route until basically until you're back at base camp. But it wasn't just people who were inspired to follow in their footsteps. It was like marketing campaigns and everything was had to be all the gear that Patagonia put out had to be like light and fast gear, you know, for this kind of alpinism. And it became this this trend in climbing that I think was really influential. And it was all based on that one ascent, basically. Or, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, the, those guys' articles, mm-hmm. an article in particular... Um, which we'll quote in a few minutes. It's fun, fun to go back and look at. Um, but then you know, it's like houses. Uh, you know, and Twight was involved too with the with the um, you know training for alpinism, and yeah, mm-hmm. it became a brand, which right. I think is kind of funny and ironic because I mean, certainly the 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 Mark Twight of that day would have railed against the idea that it it became a brand, right? But it's like it's. I mean, it was the larger trend of climbing was going that way anyway Mm -hmm. um and so it was like light and fast is just too it's too easy of a catchphrase right to not just be like that's ours now and we're gonna like we're gonna like squash it into the earth yeah exactly Uh, and pummel it yeah i don't want i don't want i don't want (laughs) to be like i (laughs) I don't want to like misrepresent what twight and house and those guys were doing because it wasn't it was out of their hands but they were they were promoting an idea and then everyone mm-hmm. else just kind of gravitated to it because as you said, it was just such a catchy way of, of understanding what they were doing. And the, to, for context, I think the Slovak was originally done over six or seven days, um, but it was seen as like cutting edge wall climbing. Mm-hmm. And that was really like the thing those guys shattered. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had, they had been working up to it. It wasn't like it just came out of the blue, yeah. um, but it became, I think the symbolic thing. And obviously I think Twite, was pretty much done with alpinism at that point. Um, and then Scott Backus, too, was always kind of in and out. Um, but certainly the house went on to kind of make a career of it yeah. uh, for another 20 years or another 15 or 16 years of that kind of climbing yep. and, and applying it to even bigger things like the root ball face and I think was kind of his crowning achievement. The um, other thing that was kind of cool about that idea or that mantra was – the idea that this is a way to be safe in the mountains. So if you move fast enough, you know, you kind of just limit the amount of time you're exposed to objective hazards. And so there is also this, you know, additional benefit Mm -hmm. to being the most, you know, fit, indestructible, 
you know, person possible um, when when you're approaching these kinds of big ad- objectives in the mountains. Yeah, and, and certainly I, I talked to Jackson about that a bit because we did talk about risk mm-hmm. and how risky these guys' ascents are getting and what they're doing compared to what you and I do when we climb and that kind of thing. And it, it does, I mean, there's definitely, you know, they're taking big risks in the, the way they're climbing in terms of putting gear in and, you know, the potential to take really long falls or to basically rip the whole rope team off the mountain kind of mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, traditionally is just absurd. Like you don't, that's not what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're using a rope, you don't just not put anything in and climb grade five and six ice. And, um, but we did talk about that flip side of like, you know, you have, especially with modern technology, as far as meteorology, meteorology is concerned, you know what is going to mostly happen in the next 21 and a half hours, right. you know, like it's not, you're not going to get surprised out. And, you know, if you talk, look back at so many of the, the fatalities in big mountains, it's being pinned down by storms yeah. and then not prepared or not prepared enough. Yeah. Um, because you didn't know what it was going to happen and, or you just took your chances. It wasn't going to be as bad as they said, you know? If you're going to be up there for five or six days, something's bound to come in. So, right. um, so yeah, there is that that comfort, if you will. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, you know, one thing that happened with houses, those ascents, is that I mean, those guys were like pushed beyond or well into the risk zone just in their capacity to function. Right. When you're going for sixty hours. Yeah, but, it sounded harrowing. Like the trip reports oh, yeah. that came out of that, they were just like their bodies were emitting whatever that foul smelling odor is when you, when your flesh starts to eat. Yeah. Itself. Right. You're decomposing yeah. <laughs> like alive. Yeah, for sure. You know? And so if you think about that and 20 years later, these guys drop it down to 21 hours and 35 minutes again, like, you know, that is, I think in most climbers, at least, you know, your basic trad climber, big, big root climbers wheelhouse to be able to operate Yeah, in, at a at a high capacity for 21 and a half. I mean most of us if you if you get into big re climbing whether it's in Yosemite or in you know the, the mountains or in the Black Canyon or something like that you're going to have a day like that whether you, if you you know just cuz something goes wrong and you're just going to have to keep going or didn't and so it's like they they've compressed it down to this world that's it's kind of simultaneously understandable and also like freakishly impossible. It's right. it's sort of this weird thing and the thing that I found interesting about Jackson talking to Jackson Marvel, and, and this is just his personality, is 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 he's just like as low fucking key about it. You know, you, you could have thought they went and like did the nutcracker. Right. You know, right. <laughs> as a threesome, you know, right. as like a, a three people on a, they saw him climb the nutcracker with three people on the rope. Like, wow. Okay, cool. Big deal. You know, yeah, so- it's a trip. And I think that's like, it's this weird hallmark of those guys, which is in contrast to, you know, let's face it, in contrast to at least the Mark Twight of the early, late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. yeah, we, um, you know, as we were kind of like preparing for this episode to the degree that we prepare for any of our episodes, <laughs> um, we were reading uh, through Mark Twight's old essay that came out of this ascent, which is called Justification for an Elitist Attitude. Um, and this is like... Uh, what what would I say? This is like prime height of his powers, Twite writing. Like yeah. this is one of his defining moments as a very bomb throwing writer to begin with. I'll just read some choice quotes. I'm an elitist prick and I think posers have polluted mountaineering. They replace skill and courage with cash and equipment. 
They make the summit, not the style, the yardstick of success. Only marginal minds or true individuals used to discover mountaineering. Lack of social support forced them to be autonomous, to turn climbing into a lifestyle isolated from society. We had community back then. Now I'm embarrassed to call myself a climber because close on the heels of the admission, some dilettante will ask whether I've read Into Thin Air or done Everest. I mean, where's the lie there? <laughs> well, you know what's really cool about that too is like is how punk rock it is. Yeah, like every every claim in that is the same sort of claim of of like the punk rock world. Right. You know, he was famous for like being in a kind of industrial like metal or like ministry. I don't know even what you call that stuff yeah. anymore. But it was like post punk. Yeah. And the attitude was very much of that, yeah. especially that like you are an individual kind of on your own yeah thing so yeah and it was it was you know it was like creating this um narrative i mean the the article gives away what the what he's trying to do he's justifying his elitist attitude Mm -hmm. and you know he's like here's the he's saying here's the proof that this works is like we're elitists we're not going to apologize for it and we just climbed the slovak direct in 60 hours you know from I think previous was like four or five days, right? Yeah, so suck it, right? Like basically, right? Um, and yeah, it's been interesting to see. So there's this uh, recent news about Jackson's ascent that right. he he got it down to 20 hours, and it was basically weeks before I saw any any news reported about this anywhere. Yeah, because the they're just so chill. Because they're so chill. But it was interesting because in this in this timeline, as I interviewed. Jackson, it was like two weeks ago uh-huh. about, right? I can't quite remember. And then the next day, and I actually knew that Michael Gardner or Sam Hennessy were on their way. I didn't know um, they had a third Rob Smith with them, but were on their way to go try it. And so did Jackson because they're all buds. Yeah. And so that, I think the day after I interviewed Jackson, he just texted me 1710 on the Slovak with a little, you know, surprised emoji yeah (laughs) the wide-eyed emoji guy um and that was like and it was funny because over the next few days i kept trying to sort of confirm this because we were actually going to talk about it yeah a little while ago and i was like i can't find any actual report of this i only i mean jackson knows these guys it's totally a legit piece of information but i'm not gonna say it until we get all the details yeah yeah and so finally i mean it wasn't even a couple days ago i think that like michael if you follow him on Instagram and he does not have very many followers on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, Michael Gardner, who happened to know. Yeah. He posted something about it. Yeah. And then Alpinist dropped something as well, but it definitely like, it took him a while, you know, there's no versus like, you know, on the summit texting out your Instagram, yeah. like, look at us. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, justification for an introverted attitude or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's their article. It's only a paragraph long. <laughs> just like you know um and that's the thing is those dudes and i don't i know like i said i know michael um and i know jackson i don't know any of these other guys but i've gotten emails too about hey you need to interview you know uh i think matt cornell was i i recently got some some sort of fan of his or maybe a friend was like you got but and it's always with this caveat but you know he doesn't really like to spray about himself blah 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 blah, which i get a lot of those you know we we both do for this yeah. show too of like you should talk to him but he doesn't like to talk about himself right it's like well might be a little bit of a hard sell you know <laughs> kind of a thing like he's so undercover like nobody knows about him i'm like 
Well, sometimes there's a reason for that, and that's yeah. why we don't get emails back from those people. You right. Know? But yeah, so there's this whole attitude that's, I don't know, it's like the, it, it, I think it's definitely their personalities, but it's also the trend mm-hmm. is just to go up there, do your thing. And and it's like, I buy it and I also partially don't buy it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and and I respect the hell out of these guys and, and but there's also, I mean, we're, they're also dudes of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Certainly they're going to like bray to their friends. They're certainly going to celebrate this. Thing. Yeah. It's not should. like so low key that they're not willing to be like, fuck yeah, yeah we fucking just sent that thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. As they should, you yeah. should be, if you, if you can't, um, pat yourself on the back after climbing the Slovak direct in 17 hours, then, you know, what can you pat yourself on the back for? Well, the other interesting thing about the style, and I joked about the smash and grab thing, and this has been going on for a few years is like Alaskan mountaineering is, is really rife with this style of like, you can be in work on Friday with no plans and see a good, forecast and they they literally gather the forces and are up there in two days they're mm-hmm. on the glacier they're climbing and they're gone like four days later wow and they just you know they, everybody's i mean jackson is a, a welder right you know right he's also sponsored but he he makes his living as a welder and yeah you know but he's got a flexible thing that's like this time of year i'm out if i'm out yeah and uh, so this whole idea too, I mean, that goes with the, the fast climbing is just this whole idea of this month long, three months previous year planning and getting all your stuff together and your sleds and planning every ounce of food and everything else. And for your like, you know, six week trip to the Ruth Glacier is just, that's for, that's for the, the masses. Man. Right, that's, right. And that's part of the elitism thing. That's, that's what you guys have to do. But what we do is. We, we keep our here. tools sharp yeah. and we keep a bag of goose yeah. ready to go and, and we watch the weather. That's super cool. Yeah. When you're talking to Jackson, did he, um, did he like give you any indication for why he shaved 40 hours off the, like what did he contribute to or think contributed to their success? Certainly just an evolution. Yeah. You know, cause I, I pressed him on it and again, I couldn't, I couldn't. Who's too reticent to like? Yeah, in a way you know. to like, you know, be like, oh yeah, because we're so smart or we're so badass or we train better or anything else. He was just like, yeah, you know, we built up to this and conditions are good. You know that, that everybody's like, we lucked out because yeah. they don't want to, you know, they don't want to step on. Obviously, they they all at least revered the climbs of Twite. Yeah, um, sure. And in in, in in Jackson's from from Salt Lake, so yeah, they've interacted. You know. So yeah, I mean it's building on it is building on a tradition, but those guys are so experienced because this is like that's the thing is I mean they've done these ascents, and and in this same year they've been up there doing these other ascents. The Slovak thing I think has risen because of its history with Twite yeah. and the fact that they, you know, it was such a significant thing in two thousand, and then yeah, they yeah. they shaved it off. But he also talked about technology, yeah, because he's like climbing ice is so easy, like. It's funny because we always, as rock climbers, we always joke about it being like jugs. Yeah. And he basically confirmed that. Like water ice, you know, just pure water ice. If your tools are in ice, like you're fine. Right. You know, and we saw that in the Alpinist too. Like, you know, once Marc-Andre got onto the ice, he was just like laughing. Right. And so the, I think that's gone so far that if he's running up, even grade six ice, he's not going to fall off in his mind. Um, and so he was talking about, they were doing this, the system 
and I, and it sounds probably like the guys that broke their record, Michael and Sam and Rob did the same system of a guy leading and then two people on the bottom of the same rope. And they go up there with one rope. Like that's it. So, I mean, even that kind of thing of like going up on a giant face without the ability to do double rope repels, if you, something goes wrong. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. And so, so they, they, but so the two guys and a leader and then, but all simul climbing. And he was saying, I usually put two pieces in a pitch, um, at the start and at the top. But then one interesting thing that they're doing is they'll throw a mini traction on a piece because then if the people do fall, it doesn't pull on the leader. Um, but also what Jackson said he could do is if they, he did do something hard and then get to like a, a ledge or an easier part, he could do just a hand belay by sucking rope up through that, oh, um, yeah. through that mini traction because you didn't have to stop the rope if they fell, but he could keep the slack out. Right. Let them catch up a ways, get through the hard part, and then put another piece in and set off. Right, know? right. Um, oh, so, I mean, it's, it's like... So, a, but what is the benefit of three there if you're just going to have one rope? I, I sort of coined it, and he agreed as horses in the stable. Yeah. You know, and so you have the juice to throw somebody else on lead or start breaking trail okay because you're mentally as much as physically you're you're out there you mm. know as the leader and you mm. can you obviously you can't fall off or go slow as the second or third but you're down there with a little bit of a reprieve and that's all they would stop for they did it and i'm sure uh the other guys did it the same way they did it in three pitches so it's i don't know it's like seven thousand feet of climbing although the the top half is the Cassin which is snow climbing and more just trudging. But yeah, it's thousands of feet of technical climbing that they did in three pitches. Um, so there that's you so go. Nuts. Yeah, that's super nuts. Well, hats off to those guys. That's like amazing. It's fun to talk about it. I mean, it'd be great if we were super experts in this, but it's fun to talk about because we all, I, I feel like completely in awe and bewilderment about how this is happening. Right. Like how this is being climbed so fast. It's, yeah. I know the technical part of it. It's still bewildering. Like, yeah, even think- revealing the secrets, you're like, oh, I know the trick. Now it's not as, you know, a magician, right? No, I know the trick and it's still bewildering, like, as to how they go so fast. Your um, lack of confidence right now is giving me pause that we're going to go to Alaska in two days and do this, Chris. <laughs> no, I got it, dude. I got like too many tracks. I'm not sure if we have enough horses in our stable. <laughs> We've got more ponies on the ponies on the Shire. Yeah, ponies on the the merry-go-round, the kids' merry-go-round. Those little sad ones that just plod along. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Where you have to ride, they're like attached. And kids ride them. That's us. The little plodding ponies. <laughs> the Slovak direct in like six weeks. <laughs> Molly Mitchell is a trad climber and barista from Boulder, Colorado. She recently sent Crank It, a gnarly 513 plus in Boulder Canyon. Two years after a fall from this very route broke her back. So two years ago, it was COVID and I needed a project close to home and I thought about trying to do Viceroy. I had just done China Doll the year before as my first 514 trad route. And Viceroy is this 14B route that is bolted at Castle Rock and Boulder Canyon, but you can do it on gear like Matt Wilder did for the first ascent. Um, And I didn't realize how heinous, it's an extension Viceroy, and I didn't realize how heinous the first pitch of it is. 
So my uh, goal of doing the whole thing was like quickly lowered because there's like this crux move on the first pitch of it called Crank It that is absolutely horrendous and took me four months to figure out how to do it. Just do the move. And then I finally sent it on the bolts and I was like, wow, I think I can do it on gear now. And I tried to figure out the gear. I actually got some pretty good gear beta. Well, obviously it wasn't the best um, from, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I have a friend, Tanner Bauer, who was trying to do Viceroy and he actually came really close to doing it. And he gave me gear beta for the crux piece, which the crux of Crank It is where Brad Gobright fell and uh, broke his back from. And so, you know, I padded out the base and uh, just in case, and Tanner gave me really good gear beta for the crux, which was this black totem upside down and and, uh, this little roof before you traverse outright for the crux move. Um, So it's like kind of like a still weird fall because you go sideways, but the black totem is pretty good. So I wasn't really worried about that. The rest of the climb is still like pumpy after the crux, but it, I didn't realize how bad the gear is up there because whenever I tested the pieces on the bolts, the rope was in such a different place than when I was climbing it on the gear because it's two separate cracks and the crux down low is traversing over to another crack. And so testing the pieces, the rope was in just such a different place. And one of my pieces, the piece that would have kept me off the ground was uh, this really good nut placement, but it got lifted up and out of the crack from the rope tension of these other two, like not really great pieces uh, ripping right at my waist. And then another nut placement below me, which I was like, I don't think this is really good, but I'm going to place it just in case, uh, came out. And then that nut lifted up and I didn't even get to weight it at all. It just lifted up and I fell luckily onto the crash pads that we had out for the first part of the route onto my butt and I broke my back. I fractured my L2 and L3 vertebrae and it was great. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Um, yeah, yeah, everyone's like, oh my God, fun. like, how was it? I'm like, yeah, it was great. <laughs> no, like it was, it was really hard. Um, I luckily did not need surgery. Um, it was just two compression fractures. Um, and so I was just in a back brace for nine weeks. And wait, before you move on from there, I just want to like set the scene a little bit at the, at, at the scene of the accident. When, when you hit the crash pad, were you able to like still walk or move around or crawl or were you just how did you get out of there (laughs) oh god no um when I hit the crash pad it was immediate like oh my god like my back was in so much pain I just laid to the side like I flopped down to the side um and some people were there and they ran like one guy drove out to call 911 and then um someone else came over and put a blanket over me and my friend I don't even know what he was doing but (laughs) he was helping in some way um and then this random person came over to me and and was like I'm a wilderness first responder like can I like hold your head and I was like no don't touch me just please don't touch me like I don't know what with a back break you know I feel like you're not supposed to move the person so I was like just just leave me here to, to suffer. Um, and then the ambulance came and they were super nonchalant when they showed up. And my friend Tanner was like, oh yeah, she fell from about like 30 feet up, like that spot. And then they were like, oh, like we thought she fell from 10 feet. <laughs> 
And so then they started like picking up the pace and being like, oh, wow, this is actually serious. And uh, did the whole thing of like feeling my toes and I could feel everything. So that was good. And they put me on a stretcher. And luckily, it's not very far walk to um, the climb. It's literally right off the road. So they didn't have to carry me so far and put me in the ambulance. And Tanner couldn't even come. He was blaming me and he couldn't even come in the ambulance with me because COVID. So I was alone and I was crying and drugged up. And I remember just like talking to the lady and she was like, why are you crying? Like, is it painful or are you sad? And I was like, I'm sad. (laughs) I just felt really guilty. Honestly, like I felt like I let everyone else down, which was kind of weird, but like, I like these kind of scary routes and that's really hard for me to sometimes justify because I feel like people are like, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that. And then I broke my back. So that was really hard for me. And then I felt like I let myself down because I just didn't, I mean, I did take the time to try to figure out the gear, uh, but I, I don't know. I let myself down. I didn't figure it out correctly, obviously. The game you're playing is a, it's a very interesting and esoteric game to be skip, you know, to climb something on bolts and then be like, all right, now I'm going to just skip the bolts and put the gear in. It's not exactly like purely trad. And, you know, it, it is kind of in this like outlier zone of not many people do this sort of thing, like very specifically. Um, so I can see how you made those judgments about directionality that didn't even occur to you until it was too late. Yeah, totally. And like, this is actually the process that I use for China Doll because the first pitch of China Doll is bolted. And so I did it on the bolt, the first pitch, and then I did the first pitch on the gear. And then I did, because China Doll is pitch one and two connected together as one route, 14A trad. So I did the whole thing on gear. So it was literally like I was trying to approach this climb as China Doll because it's bolted. And I was like, I'm going to do the first pitch on the bolts, which I did. And then I'm going to do the first pitch on the gear. And then I'm going to try to do the whole thing on the gear. But yeah, I got um, stopped in the process. <laughs> yeah, as you were talking, Molly, about uh, the first pitch, crank it. I was looking on Mountain Project, and I see this comment from um, our our departed friend Brad Gobright. And his comment is: "The crux on this route is so gnarly; it makes the Viceroy extension feel like a flight of stairs." I'd like to think a foothold broke, but deep down, I know that's not true. <laughs> it's so gnarly, and I remember talking to Chris Widener about it um before i did it and he's like dude you get like the shittiest crimps in the world and this foot that is too far right and too high and then you have to try to throw it's like a full iron cross into the crack it's almost my full extension doing that and uh it was so low percentage which was hard for me to accept i'm such a controlling person so i was like why can't i do it every time uh and that was really hard for me to accept especially coming back to it after my accident because I wanted to control everything more at that point. So let's talk a little bit about the recovery then. So we left off when you're crying in the ambulance. You know, you've got compression fractures in your spine that don't need surgery. So just basically need immobilization and rest. So what's, uh, yeah, so what's your recovery start to look like both physically and mentally? Um, I think, honestly, that was like the easiest part was being in the back brace and, and uh, accepting that I had to chill. And I think everyone was really nice to me and supportive. And so that helped my mind a bit. I think coming back from getting out of the back brace was really hard. Uh, my doctor 
said I didn't need physical therapy and that was a mistake, but, uh, I actually did okay in climbing when I first came back, but I really underestimated the trauma of the fall and how even climbing on easy trad routes, like above gear that was totally fine. And I didn't feel like I was going to fall. I had panic attacks and I would start to cry and I could barely take on a piece. So it was really hard. Was it in the ambulance that you already were like, I'm going to climb that thing eventually? (laughs) God, no. Like when did you come up with this, you know, sort of cockamamie idea that you would, you know, go back and send it. It sort of reminds me of James Lucas's, uh, you know, his free solo red point where he went back and, and free soloed the route that he fell free soloing, you know, where did the impetus and like that little crazy idea start its, uh, you know, getting its tentacles into your brain? Well, honestly, like, uh, at first, when I hit the ground, I was like, I don't think I want to climb again. Like, I'm done with this sport. Like, I just, I'm going to have to figure out my entire life and climbing's not going to be a part of it. Um, I don't know. It was really hard at first. But then after that, a few days later, actually, Topher Donahue called me and was like, if you want to do this, like, we're going to figure out a better way to do it. Like, you can anchor down that nut that uh, got lifted out of the crack. And then I think, like, using two ropes would be better. Uh, because that way the rope direction is straight underneath the pieces as opposed to going across the two cracks. And it was really interesting because he was like just giving me advice and, and uh, I was not even thinking about like trying to go back. Um, but it did get in my head a bit. And then I talked to Cedar a bit about it, Cedar Wright, and he was supportive as well and was like, I'll come back with you and look at gear. Other friends said the same thing. And I don't know, I guess I just felt like I had this huge support system. So I was like, well, like, I'll go back and look. And if I can't find better gear, then I just won't do it. That's interesting. Did you have a relationship with Topher? I mean, no, was that was most this? funny. Yeah, yeah like, Topher like, Tope Donahue online, too. You're like, I think what? It, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like, uh, so one of the, the guy that drove out and called 911, he right. was friends with Topher and told him about okay. it. And then Topher messaged me, I think, on Facebook. Okay. And was like, give me a call and we can talk about it. Yeah, it was really random. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like this thing of, uh, oh, okay, like, you know, it's I'm not crazy to think that I could go back, you know? Yeah, yeah it seems like a strange Topher thing. Donna, to you with, just though. appeared like an apparition, <laughs> in, apparition in your dreams. But also, like, yeah, other people said stuff to me too, like theater, like, we'll go out and look at gear. And obviously, it took me a bit to actually be like, this is my goal. But having a goal always helps to motivate you to get through harder times, I think. So the thought of going back and honestly, the thought of going back of having this comeback story was like, yeah, I'm going to go back and I'm going to crush it. And everyone's going to think I'm really cool. And I'm going to think I'm really cool. And I'm going to be the superhero. And yeah, and that, here you I, are on the run out. So it's all, no, it's all true. No. It's all happened. <laughs> it was not, it was not the perfect comeback story at all. That's what was interesting about it is like, it actually took me to a way darker place than I've ever been. And so it was definitely not this perfect, like linear, like we see in the movies, like, Oh man, she just came back and trained really hard. And she there's did. the montage was... of you training, you know, exactly. to some like yeah. awesome music. And like, shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Learning karate, you know, whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. Like I think of like legally blonde and she's like studying right. really hard and right. going to law school. Yeah. <laughs> Until for Donner, you has got the whistle and like the gym shorts on and <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> it's so yeah. funny because if he hears this, like we haven't even talked since then. <laughs> oh, really? Well, there yeah, you go. like I ran into him one time at Castle Rock after that, and he was just like, I think maybe just bouldering. He had like a pad, and uh, I think he offered. He was like, "Do you want to use my pad too?" <laughs> For when we were padding up the base, like uh, right. post accident. So you said that this uh, journey kind of took you to some dark places. What do you mean by that? I think I really expected it, like I said, to be this thing where I just came back and just progressed more and more and more and learned that like we could find better gear. And it was still the thing with I had, that I had to learn, too, is that this route is like there's a reason it's bolted and like it doesn't take 100 percent good gear. And you have to place if you're placing gear, you have to place it so correctly. My friend called it black belt level placement. Like if you don't place it 100% correctly, which you can't always see exactly because you're laybacking, then it's not good. And that's why, like, I think it got in my head too, like that not only is the gear like it will be good if, if I place it correctly, but it was trusting myself to place it was so hard. Like I didn't trust myself at all. I lost so much confidence in myself as like a pro climber. I was like, oh, wow, like I can't even climb on easy trad routes now without crying. And I felt like I lost my identity for a bit. And when it things weren't going so smoothly, like even just testing pieces and being like, wow, well, I thought this looked good. And so did three of my friends and it ripped again. So, so that was just, it was hard. And uh, I came actually really close to sending last summer, so close and didn't. And then after that, it was uh, just this constant, like I just regressed more and more and more. Uh, after that trying to go back and I think it was because I just wasn't ready like I was still so traumatized by it and I felt so scared climbing uh, through it and the entire time I was just like over gripping and terrified and I couldn't get into that spot where I have to be which is like calm and focused yet energized to be able to send her out I was just panicking and uh, it wasn't fun I didn't want to do it again subconsciously but I kept throwing myself at it after that. And I just kept failing like more and more and more. And that really got to me. It really made me feel like, um, yeah, like I would never be able to do anything in climbing again, which sounds so silly, but I also felt like I was spiraling. I was having a lot of other life issues going on. I had a really tough breakup and I had to move like I've had to move like four times in the last year and I'm going to have to move two more times in the next month. So it's just been a rough go. And my mental health really went to a bad place at the end of the year last year. And um, I had to take some time off from the route and I had to take some time off from working. I work part-time at Starbucks and that is not a great place to work if your mind isn't well, because it's very fast paced and very energetic and everyone's like, hi, how are you doing? And I could not (laughs) keep up with it. So I took a leave of absence from there and I didn't really climb too much for a bit. Um, I had to see my psychiatrist and figure out what was going on and adjust my medications because we've talked about before on the Enormacast that I have an anxiety disorder. And uh, I also found out, um, I found out that I'm bipolar. So in January, we had to completely change my medications and I just needed a break from life for a bit. And so I finally started climbing and really training again, like in late February, March, but I definitely took like two months off from really putting any pressure on myself to do much. And then I was like, okay, like my medications were working better. And I was like, time to start getting into shape and trying to climb other climbs too, which helped. 
to just be like, okay, I can actually rock climb. I'm not just a failure at rock climbing altogether. And then started to go back to the climb mid-April, I believe. So, um, you know, this, <laughs> Sorry, is, that was this heavy. may... No, no, it's awesome. This, this may broaden our, our scope of our talk here, but I can't help it. And I, and I probably asked this of you before, but you're talking about medication. You're talking about um, various diagnoses. You're talking about seeing a psychiatrist. Within all of that, where does this risky climbing thing fit? I mean, because one of the, the hallmarks of what we're talking about is that you're attracted to this type of climbing, obviously. Um, not many people are. You know, it's a very sort of rarefied part of climbing. And yet you are obviously someone who's attracted to it. And you've even stated that, that this sort of, you know, danger zone is like where you thrive in a way, but it seems counterintuitive, uh, you know, so wh- where does it sort of fit in with, um, with all those things you just described in your opinion, maybe, or uh, maybe even in a professional opinion outside of yourself? I've tried to analyze it a bunch. It, it was really like, first of all, I've really not told many people that I'm bipolar, so that's pretty big for me. Um, okay. And I have tried to like think about it a bunch. Sometimes I'm like, well, is that the only reason that I like these climbs is because I go through these phases of being like um, either really low or really high. Um, and that kind of doesn't feel great, right? I don't want to think like that I am only successful because of that, but I, I don't think that's true actually. Now that like when I have reflected on it more, I think, like, especially with Crank It, like maybe other routes I was able to, uh, like, get through no matter what state I was in. But with Crank It, it was like, I, I mean, I'd been on a mood stabilizer for like five months at that point, And I still have anxiety. Like, that's just something that I have to deal with as well. And I was having a bunch of anxiety, actually, the day that I sent. But found out with Crank It that I really had to find a place where I was, like, really calm but focused. And when I was on the climb, I had several times where I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm panicking. And I was like, no, bring it back. Okay. And so I think with these, you know, scary climbs, I think that actually I have to find some balance with it because if I'm too over the top, I like try to control everything. Like I was trying to control everything with crank it. I actually, even like after I almost sent last summer, I like hung a towel like above, um, like the crux hold was the only hold that would get wet when it would rain and it was raining a ton. And I tried to hang a towel in this crack above to like prevent it from getting into this, onto the crux hold. It's like this little pocket in the roof. I like stuck a sponge in there to try to absorb all the water. And my friend said to me, he was like, I think if you're trying to hang a towel above your route to keep it not wet, I think it's too humid. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're totally right. But I was just obsessive. I was so obsessive. And now I understand why I go through those phases. And then after that, I went really low. Anyway, so I think with Crank It more than any other route, I had to find a way to not over obsess about it and like try to control it and like make it like the entire focus of my life. And I had to not be like too down on myself too. Like, oh, I just will never be able to do this route. I had to like find that balance and understand that there's going to be fear and anxiety, but that I could handle it and that I could like bring it back to baseline. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I mean, what you just articulated, Molly, was just such um, a thing that I I've, can resonate with. I think a lot of people out there can of figuring out what the, you know, where the balance is with all the emotions and the the life structure and your kind of commitment to the route that it achieves some kind of like harmony that allows that like kind of alchemy to work and 
you get to send the root in this magical moment. Obviously, <laughs> you've got a lot more complicating factors, given that you broke your back on this thing, and there was this huge mental thing with um, how scary the route was. And then also that journey that you just described with your own mental health issues. I'd love to hear you just, since you're doing such a good job articulating these things, like what is it that really attracts you to doing bolted routes on gear? Because that's such a, it's not an obvious uh, thing that people would be drawn to. So what is it that kind of got you into that? And how would you describe what it is that you like about it? It's so interesting because I think like at first, I think I had a natural talent with trad climbing, um, especially like I've talked about on the Enormacast before that with my anxiety, like learning how to deal with anxiety is really similar to learning how to deal with anxiety on a route where like you're placing gear. And I've always been interested in the mental aspect of climbing, but I definitely think I got like an ego and I was like, yeah, I can totally do all these scary things. And like, I actually really love doing the scary things, but I definitely think for a bit there, I was not maybe doing it for the quote unquote right reasons. And I've taken a break from it. I've done like sport climbing and whatever, but I think the real thing is that I really like these routes because they do challenge me in a way that like I, I experience anxiety in my day-to-day life. I experience these highs and lows. And when I pick a route like that, if I'm going to do it, which if I pick a route, I'm like, I'm committed to it. If I'm going to do it, like I have to figure out a way to like have my mind like really focused for the first time in a while, maybe, or like really just figure out how to, if I experience anxiety or experience these big emotions, bring it back to baseline. And I think that was something with Crank It too, that I reached this like realization or this breakthrough um, a few weeks before I sent. And it was like, you're never not going to be scared on this route and you want to do it. Like you've committed that you're going to keep going and doing it. And for a while I was self-sabotaging and falling really low on it, on the crux and not committing. I mean, the crux is hard, but I wasn't committing to get through it. And I just had this thing where I was like, okay, you want to do this route. You've committed to doing it. So you have to realize that you have to handle the emotions that are going to come up. And being able to get through that is just like the biggest win for me in my life. Um, it's like bigger than rock climbing. So I'm like getting chills when I, I get chills when I talk about it. Sorry. It's like, so I just feel like that in my life, like I struggle a lot mentally and not saying that other people don't struggle more or whatever, but doing something like that, I'm just so proud of myself for handling all the emotions that come up because I'm not, not scared. Like I'm terrified, but being able to handle that is like, wow, okay. I'm actually mentally strong. That's why I think I like those. So do you do you feel like this um I mean you're kind of drawing these parallels between the the mental challenges of climbing scary routes and the mental challenges that you've faced in in normal corners of life. Do you feel like the struggles that you've overcome in your normal life are your kind of superpower for climbing hard or do you feel like climbing hard scary routes has kind of allowed you to approach these mental challenges in your life a little bit better than you would have otherwise? Like, is there a chicken and egg thing that you can parse Mm -hmm. out between those two? I definitely think my mind is either my strongest thing or it's my, you know, weakest. And maybe that's cliche, but I do think that it, it bounces back and forth. Like you said, if I'm feeling better mentally, which I'm never going to feel perfect. And I have had to accept that it's never going to be like, oh yeah, I'm just going to show up and, you know, I'm going to be positive and like, I'm going to just send this route. No big deal. Like (laughs) it's never like that for me. And uh, so I, yeah, I think um, realizing that and then 
being able to accomplish something like that, it does help me mentally as well to say like, wow, you're actually um, not a loser. No, <laughs> not, not a loser, but <laughs> you're like, you're not like just controlled by your mind. And so I think that I do take those wins like to heart. And that was a really big, I think that'll be like the biggest win I'll ever have in climbing probably because I had to go through so much and to, I, I feel like I'm almost still in shock by it. I like don't think about it that much because it's really weird to think that it's over. But anyways, what you're saying, yes, I do think that doing routes like that helps me mentally in my life. So I think that the opposite of that is also true, that going through uh, what I have to go through, it actually does help me on the route because I don't think I was ready last summer, if that makes sense to what you're saying, because I hadn't gone through and figured out what I needed to figure out about myself in order to send it. And maybe that's way over the top. Like people would be like, oh, it's just a rock climb, like whatever. But for me, it meant so much more. And I also like figuring out that I was bipolar and having to, yeah, just understand that and accept that. It's taken a long time to accept it as well. Um, I just think that if I didn't figure that out, or had I sent that route last summer, I maybe never would have figured that out about myself and I would have kept living the way I was living. And now that I've figured that out, I actually think that it helped me to send this route and it just all was like connected. Does that make sense? I, I love that this is a high point for you and, and uh, in sort of giving you so much pride and strength. And, you know, I agree that hopefully some, some set of circumstances exactly like this does not happen to you again. Like where you yeah. have to take another 30 foot ground fall to, uh, to, to, <laughs> to, go, to go through the yeah. next, to the next plateau or whatever. Um, we'll find a yeah. healthier way to get there, uh, the next time. But, um, I have a question a little bit about, you know, um, the sender films this year, the, one of the sort of crowd favorites was Alex Johnson's, uh, film about the swarm, obviously a different arc than, than what you've gone through. But she talked in that a lot about the sort of outside pressure that mounted with that because of. Um, her being a public figure and sort of publicly talking about it. And um, it kind of, when you started talking about how like all these other people were, you know, more excited about you trying the route again at first than you kind of were, you know, having sort of a, if not hugely public, but at least, you know, everyone in Boulder probably knew like there you were back on that route. And, you know, did that ever feel odd or like pressure mounting from, you know, this outside force of like not letting these people who you know have reinvested in your journey down or anything like that ever complicate things because i feel like it would have with me like it would have started to be like all right everyone just leave me alone you know yeah. like let's stop talking about it like or whatever do you know what i mean i almost think people were like why do you care so much about it <laughs> mm. it was either that or like oh i thought you sent that already and that really made me be like <laughs> I'd run into people at Castle Rock that I run into all the time. It was so funny. I for, I think his name was Mark, but I'd run into him at Castle Rock a lot. And like, I'm always just like, if I don't get through the crux or whatever, or maybe I wasn't trying to send that day, I'd be hanging at that first bolt at that crux overanalyzing it. And his wife was there one day with him too. He's like, this is Molly. She's always at this spot on the wall. <laughs> um, but you know, I think I put way more pressure on myself than other people did. I think like most people were like, wow, like you're getting on it again. That's amazing. And for me, I couldn't accept that. I was, like, I was just so controlly and like, uh, 
I guess maybe a bit like hypomanic now that I think about it, like just obsessing and like going to extremes. So, and it was just, it was, it was not a fun time for me actually like for so long it was not a fun time for me and I just felt like the world was against me and like that I was cursed because everything that could go wrong on that route would happen <laughs> so uh, it was just a journey and and uh I, yeah I felt like a little pressure from other people but it was definitely more of me on myself because other people were like wow she's getting on it or wow like uh why are you so obsessed with this? Like you have so many other rock climbs that you can do around Boulder that are so awesome. And you're on this, like someone said to me, they're like, it's like a 40 foot choss pile. Like, why are you on that? Um, <laughs> and they're right. It's not that great. No, <laughs> it's a good route. It just, I mean, it, yeah, it tested me in more ways than I've ever been tested. So I think that was something that looking back was like, why I felt like I needed to control everything. But, you know, as cliche as it sounds, you have to let it go and then come back. And that's when it went down for me. Yeah, I think it's really cool, too, is that you've added another layer to this, you know, the history of this pretty obscure route, you know. Um, <laughs> but then looking at the it's history classic. of it. I mean, what are you talking about? I know, I know. But, <laughs> you know, but there, there's a lot there because, I mean, Jerry Moffat freed it, you know, so in, in his, you know, his trip to boulder in that era and at castle rock has all sorts of stories around it with the roof roots and all those things that happened up there and then you know brad was part of the story and so it's like you've added this other cool layer of history to this otherwise like you know not so famous or not so uh you know i mean it's and then castle rock itself you know it's been this weird lump of rock there that's roadside that's like played i think this huge part of boulder climbing history even though it's not very big and not very extensive as a you know a cliff but there it is like always repeating itself in in the history of sort of boulder climbing and i think it's great that you've put this other new story out of this crag that's like you know by most people's standards was like climbed out in the 80s or whatever and all the stories had been told so to speak and you just told a new one and i think it's awesome thanks that's actually a really cool perspective yeah, the whole thing with Brad was like, I don't know, it's kind of eerie because I found out he was actually the exact same age as me when we decked on the same climb. <laughs> right. And my claim to fame is that I fell higher than him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, like, and he actually was involved in uh, the only other time I've ever broken a bone, which was my nose. I was hiking, trying to find a boulder above Camp 4 in Yosemite. And I slipped on a rock in this talus field and ended up pulling myself into a tree and breaking my nose. And uh, my friend and I are like hiking down. He like gave me a shirt, like I'm holding up to my nose covered in blood. And the people from Yosar come out of their tents and like, is everything okay? Like they thought this guy punched me at first, <laughs> like holding a <laughs> shirt up to my him. nose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, uh, it was like this big scene and uh, I'm sitting there and they're like crying and Brad comes out of the tent with like a Theracane and he's like, hey molly how's it going it was like so nonchalant like so, so funny i'm like not great okay <laughs> but, i mean i didn't have too many interactions with him i definitely looked up to him but those were the ones that i remember the most <laughs> yeah um but yeah i agree with you uh with castle rock and its history and definitely like uh castle rock is really weird with gear sometimes like you have to be really specific and I know that uh, actually the same day that I decked, this other guy reached out to me on Instagram 
Scott, I think was his name. And uh, he said that he actually, like, I think decked or soft decked on the campaigner, which is a few routes over to the left of Crankit. And he was like leaving, like he wasn't as injured. He did go to the hospital and make sure he was okay. But like he was able to walk and, and uh, he and his partner were leaving apparently when I was padding up the base for Crankit. <laughs> they're like, let's get out of here. Something's going down. I guess to the hospital, and I'm like, "Cool, oh, see ya." <laughs> and then my accident oh, happened. It's just eerie, you know, like really weird stuff. But that's why I think, like, in maybe, like, I oh, am over the top. It's like, oh, I'm not like super spiritual, but I do think things are like connected in this weird way. And I definitely think, like, what I went through, I had to go through in order to do this route. And to, I mean, that's what the film with theater is going to be so great too, because. There are some like really crazy things that went down over the few years of working on it. And even after I broke my back, there was just so much drama that happened that it's, it'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> it nice. definitely went in a different way than like, you know, this expected comeback story and like what we just talked about with the mental health and how my life just fell apart too. like really paralleled the climb for how the climb was going for me. It's crazy, like, because I think I wanted that awesome comeback story for, like, a film. Like, I've always wanted to work with theater, you know, and I wanted that awesome comeback story. And now I'm like, well, this is actually more, like, of a great film. And, like, it's going to help a lot of people because it's so much more about not just climbing, but about life experience and mental health. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you a question about that just generally speaking, because the mental health aspect is such a relevant conversation that lots of people are having. Um, certainly among younger generations, it seems to be a particularly salient issue. And uh, I think that it's something that we're just thinking about more in a healthy way, you know, and it's just becoming more visible and so forth. So I'd just love to hear uh, you share any advice or tips that you have with people who might feel like they're struggling with some kind of mental health issue. How, what advice would you give to them? I think this is interesting because with climbing, I've always felt like people, a lot of people have reached out to me about, Oh, you're so open about like your anxiety and stuff. And um, I do go back and forth with uh, just being open because I feel like now it's kind of expected in this weird way to be super open and I'm happy to do it. But it took me a while, for example, with this bipolar diagnosis to be okay talking about it. And this is like, you guys are getting the first time that I'm really being public about it, <laughs> um, which is cool. But I think it's like really awesome that it's going in this way. And I would say that I sometimes still struggle opening up or just even like admitting things to my psychiatrist that are, I didn't know were symptoms of bipolar, that that's why it took me so long. I think you need to find a therapist and it's like, if you need a psychiatrist, if your therapist recommends, and you need to be 100% honest with them. Like, I feel like sometimes I'm ashamed of certain aspects of myself. And I think I'm just totally a freak for acting a certain way. And I don't bring it up, but I didn't know that spending a ton of money in random bouts of just risky behavior is actually a part of bipolar disorder. <laughs> and I would never share that with people because I was ashamed. Um, so I think just, yeah, finding a therapist, finding a friend that you can tell first as well. And like people that you're comfortable around, like I've told a few friends that I'm bipolar and seeing their reaction and how like they don't treat me differently is really cool. I think just being able to be okay with it yourself first and it's always hard for me to open up to the world as much as I feel like maybe people expect me to now with how I've treated it in the past. 
but it's okay to take time for yourself not to share too and take time to figure out what's going on and be okay with it and then open up. It doesn't have to be like how it is all over Instagram, like almost like promoting, you know, I think it's really important to accept it yourself. And that was something that with this diagnosis, I really had to take time to accept it and understand it. And definitely just, just be honest with your friends and that you trust. You're supposed to have friends that you trust, you know, that's why they're your friends honest with your friends honest with your parents and honest with your therapist which I'm not always I sometimes I'm like I sugarcoat things to my therapist because I don't feel comfortable and I'm like well that obviously wasn't a right match (laughs) I need to like figure out something different I think that's really important just finding people that you can trust that you can tell everything to and don't hide it or sugarcoat it yeah thanks that's great advice Molly you mentioned that during this process, you thought maybe I'm just going to quit climbing and this is too hard and I'm just going to find something else to do. But you obviously have had this great experience coming back to climbing and do, and you know vanquishing your your nemesis route. What has changed for you? Do you, do you feel like this is something that you're going to continue doing for the rest of your life? Have you realized anything about climbing that you love more? How do you feel about it now compared to how you were feeling in those dark days after your accident? I think there's a few things that I've actually thought about more over the past few weeks. Like I was actually really glad, not at first, but like Cedar was like, okay, let's wait like a couple of weeks to like break the news and whatever. And I'm like, I want to post about it now. And I had to like realize that like, this was the biggest thing of my life. It was so big for me and it was the biggest personal win and I had to take it in. And it was really good for me not to just be like immediately like sharing on Instagram, like everyone does nowadays, you know, when they send something, they're just like, yeah, like, let's celebrate me. Like I needed to celebrate like myself and just like sit with it. And it's like, it's kind of, it was kind of hard. Like it's, it's over, you know, like it's done. And I actually like had a few days where I was like, well, maybe I should go back and do the extension because I don't know if like that was good enough. And I, I don't know, it's just like this weird like, thing in my head that I do where I'm like, like, well, like maybe since I did that, I can totally do the extension. I should just go back and like spend my entire life at Castle Rock again. Um <laughs> No, yeah, but yeah. like your buddy be like, "Up oh, there, she is. That's Molly. <laughs> she is. This is Molly. <laughs> oh, she's, she's always there. Part of the route. Yeah, she's always there. <laughs> uh no, but like I think I'm still processing. It's like hard, but um, I think that yes, I, it was a big thing for me to accept that I like these kind of routes, and it's okay that I like them, even if other people don't understand. And so I like these routes, so I'll definitely do more of them in the future. That doesn't mean that I'm just always going to do them every time I go out climbing. I'm going to take my time and figure out what I want to do next. And I I think I'm not going to put so much pressure on myself and realize that uh, it'll, it'll happen in time and I don't need to like rush anything and I don't need to prove anything to someone. And that was my next point is that I've realized that social media is so toxic sometimes. And like, I feel like I always have to like be like one upping myself and other people on social media. And so I think like Cedar said, with like waiting a few weeks to break the news, it was good for me because it's like, I don't care what anyone else says. Like I did this and I I crushed it and it was really meaningful to me. And that's all that really matters. It's undeniably happening everywhere you go. Someone posts a photo of a place that looks dope and now everyone else wants to go there too. But not all crags can handle the hordes. Some places, while not exactly top secret, are protected in some way by the locals who wish to not blow them up on social media. Is it too much to ask? Is it for selfish reasons, just to keep their little spots to themselves and their group of friends? Or are there legitimate concerns around keeping Craig's secret? 
On the latest bonus episode of The Runout, Chris and I delve into this topic and lock horns with our guest, Sam Elias. Sam's a professional climber who's been outspoken about gatekeeping, elitism, and other issues related to keeping Craig's secret. If you want to listen to this debate, you'll need to join us on Patreon. And for what amounts to about five bucks a month, you'll be able to hear this bonus episode and others, as well as keep our podcast going. So remember, whichever side of this issue you fall on, whether you think we need to get elitism out of climbing, or you think we need to do a better job of keeping Craig's secret, just know that Chris and I only care to hear your opinion if you're actively supporting our show. On today's final bit, we feature Boulder, Colorado's Dry Mouth and a dose of their self-described cactus jazz, a concoction of psychedelic mood, wailing guitar, and heavy rhythm section. I met guitarist and climber Kyle Ward in a parking lot, and after a short chat about the podcast, I happened to hand him a vintage Justin Bieber sticker. He was overjoyed. And then he said it was going on his pedal board, which revealed that he was a musician. And the rest is here on the runout. Enjoy a rough cut of Lude by Dry Mouth. And look for them on Instagram at Drymouth Music or gigging in the Colorado Front Range.
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. Patreon.com slash runout podcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at Patreon slash runout podcast.com. <laughs> no, dot, dot com slash runout podcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Yeah.